have a Bible, you can find the text in your order of worship, or you can use your phone or your iPad or any other TSA-approved device. So I say, do you hear the word of God? There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you that, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would come and convict us. Give us a great conviction of our sin as well as a great conviction of your grace and mercy. Father, I pray that you would, um, as we consider the, the, the truths that we find here this morning, I pray that you would change us. I pray that you would make us more and more of what you would have us to be. Father, I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. And amen. If you showed up at my house on Sunday morning at about... I don't know, 6.30 maybe, or 6.15, you'd probably find me and, and Judy sitting at our dining room table. Um, we only get the Sunday paper. We don't get it the rest of the week. I use my iPad. And, and you'd find us sitting there. Um, Judy would probably be reading the ads, you know, that, that come. That's one of the reasons we get it. And I would be reading the comics. That's all I read on Sunday mornings. I don't want to pollute my head with anything else before I have to come to church and preach. And this morning, as I was flipping through, I said, that is beautiful. And Judy said, what is it? I said, you have to find out. You see, there's a comic strip called Wumo. I don't, I've never read it before. It's one strip. And it was basically two ants. And the ants were walking, and they each had a big crumb of bread, and one was trying to persuade the other about retirement. And one of the, the, the ant that was doing the talking said, I'm telling you, Bob, you've got to have a 20 or 30 year horizon to make this work for you. And as they're having this discussion, they're having it in the shadow of a huge foot that is getting ready to fall down. <laughs> Which leads into the question that I was going to ask originally. I want you to ask this question of yourself for a second. Um, can you think of an event or time that brought you face to face with your own mortality? It could be anything. I mean, for me, I was trying to think about it. It was most of my childhood. And then, of course, I took the safe route by joining the army. What is it that, that brings you face to face? Is it, is it uh, maybe the death of a loved one? Maybe it's big tragic events, you know, like uh, when, when the planes hit the towers on 9-11 or when you read about a church bombing or something. My guess is, is that those things don't really affect you or me as much as they ought to. 
In other words, we're so inundated with information. We're so inundated with whether it's the internet or cable or something. We're so inundated, it's easy to hear about a church being bombed or something. And then just, ah, that's another thing, you know. Last week, I was reading a bus drove off the edge of a cliff in Brazil with 49 people in it, and they all died. Yeah. What's on the next page of the news? In other words, when I read those things, it doesn't necessarily make me go, that could be me. And yet maybe it should. Maybe it should. I was was looking at the Nielsen ratings this week for for the purpose of this sermon. I thought, I wonder what, I I had this sneaking suspicion. I I said, I wonder what the top 10 television shows are. And the top 10 television shows in prime time, five of them are crime dramas that revolve around murder every single week. Three of them are reality shows and two of them are comedies. Big Bang Theory was number one. On the other hand, I looked at what was, what was uh, on cable. What were the top ten programs? Seven of them were reality shows. Three of them were professional wrestling, which I thought was interesting to be in the category of reality. But nonetheless, we're sort of, we, we watch television or we watch the internet and we see all these horrible things happening all the time and I don't know that it really affects us, that it could be us. And so as we look at the text this morning, we, we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke. One of the reasons that, that we preach through books of the Bible here is because you can't skip uncomfortable sections. You have to deal with uncomfortable truths. And up to this point, Jesus, remember all the way back in chapter 11, Jesus started this thing with the the Pharisees and he confronted them on their hypocrisy and that led to a talk about stewardship, which led to a talk about judgment, which led to a talk about the second coming, which remember the last thing Steve talked about last week is is he preached the passage right before this. Let me read it to you. He says in verse 57 of chapter 12, Jesus said, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. And so the last thing we looked at is Jesus basically saying, if there is someone who is a judge over you, an accuser, you better do your best to make, make things square with him, because if you actually have to go before the judge on your own merit, you will lose. Now, you would expect people to say, what should we do? And instead, they try and deflect. We're going to look at three things this morning. The first thing we're going to look at is basically, one, the reality of our own mortality. Second thing we'll look at is a call to repentance. In fact, most of the sermon might be about repentance this morning. And then the last thing we'll look at is the vine dresser's grace. Okay, so the reality of our mortality, a call to repentance, and then the last thing is the vine dresser's grace. Now, when we talk about the reality of our mortality, notice, so Jesus has just said, said, done this very hard text. He said these very hard things that I came to divide, not to bring peace to everybody, all of these things. And instead of people saying, what should we do? They immediately tell him about something else. Well, have you, have you heard about this? Notice what they say. They say there were some present there at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And the answer, no. And verse 4, he says, Are those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So the, really the question, they're coming to him and they're, they're reflecting, And Jesus has just said, you, he's talking to them, you need to settle with the one who has something against you. You need to settle with the judge. And they said, yeah, you know what, Pilate, did you hear about the one about Pilate killing all those Galileans? 
And the assumption in their mind, we know, because Jesus says it, but also it's pretty well known, that the, the assumption back then was, you know, it makes me think of, that's where my grandmother got it, is what, basically what comes around goes around. And when I was a boy, I remember my grandmother used to sit there with a cigarette always, and whenever I would do something, like say for example, I was mean to my sister, and then later in the day I would skin my knee, she would say, what comes around goes around, boy, right? I mean, everything to her was what comes around goes around. Well, the Pharisees thought a version of that as well. They thought if, if bad things are happening to you, you must have committed a particularly bad sin, and that's not an uncommon viewpoint. In fact, if you read the whole book of Job, that's what it's about. Remember, Satan says to God, let me test Job. We'll see if he's faithful. And so Satan starts throwing all these things at Job. And Job's friends come and say, you must have done something wrong. And Job's like, I'm serious. I haven't done anything. And they're like, come on, Job. Like, fess up. What have you been doing? He hadn't been doing anything. In other words, is there a cause, is, is sin, is there, are the consequences of sin cause and effect? And so when these people come and they ask, it's sort of the, the implicit question is, why did this happen to them? Were they worse sinners? In fact, they come with a political atrocity in Jesus of Siani, right? Pilate was the Roman ruler of Judea, and, and there's nowhere else but the Bible is this attested. And maybe one other place is this event attested. And most historians would say that the reason this isn't attested in other places in the Bible is Pilate was so mean and so despicable and did these things so often that they didn't record. The, if it was only a few people, that's nothing to Pilate. He killed people all the time. And here, for the, for the sake of argument, he killed people in church. Which, remember, the Romans had a hand-off policy when, with regard to local religions, and yet Pilate somehow entered in and, and his soldiers killed people as they were sacrificing. At least one uh, historian from the, from the ancient church, his name is Ephraim the Syrian, uh, he said that it's uh, Herod. Remember, remember when Herod beheaded John the Baptist? He said, Pilate is retaliating for that because that was an unlawful killing and he wanted to make sure Herod knew who was boss. At any rate, it was bad and it was done at the hands of men. And Jesus says, do you think it was done at the hands of men because those guys were worse than you? He says, what about the 18 that just got, were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? In other words, that wasn't an act of man. You can't blame. You can't point and say, well, that's Pilate. He was evil. It, 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 basically, where the pool of Siloam is, it's, it's on the southeast part of Jerusalem near the wall. And basically, some think it was just scaffolding that fell and killed 18 people who were there ritually cleansing themselves. Again, good, quote, religious people. Jesus, in some sense, says, what are you going to do with that one? You can't blame Pilate. That was just an act of God. And what's interesting in this text is nowhere does Jesus let God off the hook for actually being behind these things. He doesn't say God wouldn't do something like that. Instead, he, he actually changes the argument or he changes the discussion because as they are coming in, basically saying, um, were they worse sinners? You know, why did this happen to them? Jesus changes it and basically wants us to consider, why does it not happen to you? In other words, instead of saying, when, when you see bad things happen and saying, why did that bad thing happen to them? Maybe the better question is, why didn't it happen to me? Because when you think about mortality, it's only a matter of time. Death has a 100% record for victory. Everyone. Ultimately, there's resurrection, but even Jesus, death won, wins every time. All of us will die. It might, we might die walking out and getting hit by a bus, or it might be 20 or 30 years from now, but it will happen. And the question is, 
Are you ready for that? You see, because if you think just being a good person is good enough, I've got bad news for you. I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of relative, right? Because I was thinking of myself, if someone said, Tommy, are you a good person? And I would say, compared to Hitler? Yeah, I'm all right. Compared to Mother Teresa? Yeah, not so much. My favorite line from Tim Keller is he, he always says, you're not Hitler or Stalin, but it's not for lack of talent. <laughs> and remember, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen the short, of, this is short of the glory of God. Not some. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so if all have sinned, all deserve God's wrath and punishment, and all by nature and by choice are under this thing called the curse brought on by Adam, and it's just simply perpetuated by every human being that followed. So the question when bad things happen is not why did it happen to them, but why didn't it happen to me? You know, there's only one time in history when something bad happened to a good man. You know that, right? Because there's only one man who was ever good, and the bad thing that happened to him was the cross. And the, the cross of Jesus was the only time something bad happened to someone good, and it was unjust. And yet, that's the beauty of the gospel. You and I deserve justice, but Jesus takes it for us. You and I deserve the curse, but Jesus takes it for us. You and I deserve the wrath of God, but Jesus takes it for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. You see, the reason that the the bad things haven't happened to us is sheerly the mercy and grace of God. It's not because other, you're better than other people. I'll tell you that right now. In fact, you ever looked at other people? The Psalms wrestle with this all the time. How the psalmist feels like he's a good and upright man and he looks over and sees the wicked prospering. Why is that happening? Well, in the providence and plan of God, that is happening. At the end of the day, all of us deserve wrath and punishment and death. And yet, what is offered to us is life and hope. Will you take it? You see, what what do we do? If if a smart person, after everything Jesus had said in chapter 12, would say, what should I do now? But they didn't. Instead of that, they said, what about those bad people over there? Jesus actually turns the argument to get them to think about what they should do now. And in the context of saying, do you think that those sinners were worse than the other ones or the ones in Jerusalem were worse than the other ones? He says twice. Whenever Jesus says something twice, that's like an exclamation point. Verse 3, he says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And verse 5, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And by the way, he's not talking about you're just going to perish like your tower's going to fall on you. I think he means ultimately this long-term view. All of chapter 11 and 12, he's been talking about what is coming in the future. And he's saying, unless you repent, you will perish. And so if repentance, if our, if our not perishing is contingent upon pe- repentance, we better understand what repentance is, right? We better figure it out. And that's where we go next. So notice what he says. And he says, unless you repent, you will perish. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. When you think of repentance, what do you think of? Like off the top of my head, I couldn't help but think when I was in college and I would see like the crazy guys with the sandwich boards that would say the end is near, you know, repent. And yet, what does that mean? Unless you understand what it means, it's sort of just like yapping. So what is repentance? I'm going to give you a three, threefold definition of repentance. The first thing you have to understand about repentance is this, is that it is about confession. 
In other words, you think about, you, you understand that you have sinned, whether it's sinned against God or sinned against your, your spouse or a friend, whatever, and you, you are willing to confess, yes, I did that. Yes, I am wrong. At least in your head, you're willing to confess. Confession is primarily intellectual. You're going to give an intellectual assent to the fact that when God says, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of my glory, you confess and say, yes, that is me. And if you only confess your sins, you haven't reached repentance yet, okay? You need something else. You need contrition. What is contrition? Contrition is the emotional part of repentance. So if confession is admitting that you've done wrong, contrition is actually feeling that you've done wrong. So let's think about a specific thing that most of you probably couldn't identify with, but I can, that you've somehow uh, made your wife angry or you have been angry at your wife, right? So, so if you were going to confess that, you would think, in your mind, you would think, I have treated my wife poorly. And if you were contrite, you might even feel like, man, I'm a heel, I treated my wife poorly. But if you were only confess your sins and you were only contrite about them, you still have not reached repentance. In other words, you can feel really bad about your sins and still go to hell. So if, it, if you have confession and contrition, what's the, the third part? The third part is the one that we struggle with the most and it, it's just as important as the others. It's change. It's, it's literally changing. It's doing something different than you were doing before. So take that example. Um, if I think, okay, I've, I, I, I was angry at my spouse, and I feel like that was a bad thing, and I feel horrible about it. If you do not go to your spouse and do something different, you haven't repented. In other words, a lot of us get to that point of, of saying we were wrong and thinking we were wrong, but it's quite another thing to actually go to that person or go to God and say, God, I am different. How can I be different? How can I act differently? If you read the book of Ephesians chapter 5, remember Paul talks about repentance there. He doesn't use the word. But remember he says, you who used to steal, put off stealing and basically put on work. In other words, he, said, he uses a metaphor of putting off and putting on. So you're putting off your sin and putting on the positive thing. Remember I told you some time ago, a few weeks ago, about uh, the communication course I'm going through and them really spending a lot of time on identifying my shtick and my purpose, right? And the shtick is basically how you respond to threat. And, and it, it's basically your, the sinful way you respond when you don't get what you want or don't think what you need or, or desire, and right, remember mine, it was, it's going to shock you that my shtick, the title of it, was God's indignant cynic, right? On the other hand, my purpose was, was resilient friend and shepherd. And they do that by looking at your life and all these tests and, and things. Well, what they spent a week doing was helping us to figure out what it feels like when you are starting to go into your shtick. In other words, when you're starting to go this way, and how do you change direction and go this way? That's what repentance is. It's a different thing, but in the moment, in, in other words, when you start feeling it coming on with regard to stake and purpose, you feel like you're, this something is happening now where I'm, getting, I'm feeling negative, I'm responding negatively. What I need to do is I need to take a deep breath and I need to change and do something differently. Let me give you an easier example. You know, I've, I never have been to Spokane until my daughter started attending college there. And Almost every time I've been, I've been four or five times, I make the same mistake. I made it the last time I was there when I took my daughter there in the fall. 
is we drove to my hotel. If you're on the main drag, drove to my hotel, took a left into my hotel. We got out of the car, put stuff in the hotel, got out of my, got, went back to the car, went back to the same entrance that I entered in, and just took a right out of the parking lot because I took a left into the parking lot. Well, if you're familiar with Spokane, basically the main drag is like three or four lanes one direction and three or four lanes this direction with a big city in the middle. And so I took a right. And the first thing, you know, Abby said, Dad, I think you're going the wrong way. Oh, those cars, they don't know what they're doing. They're probably all going the wrong way themselves. <laughs> Dad, you know, they're blinking their lights. Well, it's probably like a gang initiation. You never know about Spokane. <laughs> and eventually I realized that there are four lanes of traffic coming directly for me, and I'm heading toward them. Now think about it. I could admit that I was wrong. Abby, I confess that I'm going the wrong way down a four-lane street. Would that have helped me at all? Might have made her feel better. I can't even feel bad about it. Abby, I feel bad that we are getting ready to die. <laughs> Sorry, you were right. Or I could admit I was wrong. I could feel that I was wrong. And then finally, I could actually change direction. That was what we opted for. I wouldn't be here now. If, in other words, to repent is to not only feel and not only to think, but you actually need to do something. You need to stop moving in one direction and start moving in another direction. It means to stop pursuing your sin, to stop pursuing those things which do damage to you, to stop pursuing things that are idols to you, and to start pursuing the one who gave everything for you. It means to pursue Jesus. You see, we tend to look at repentance like, uh, like it's some work or something. But repentance is also a gift of God's grace. Because if the Holy Spirit was not working in your heart, you wouldn't even know that you did wrong. You wouldn't feel that you did wrong. And it's also the Holy Spirit who empowers you to move in a different direction. Ask yourself, maybe take, you know, today, you know, if, you're, if you journal, ask yourself, what, is there something or things I need to repent of? Because repentance also is not a one-time act. It's a lifestyle. In other words, if you're not a Christian, you need to repent and believe the gospel. You need to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. And then once you become a Christian, you know what you need to do every day for the rest of your life? Let me correct that. Every hour or every minute for the rest of your life? Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. You see, and that could sound very negative, but Jesus actually takes this in a positive direction. Because if you just hear repent, you can hear nothing but I need to stop being bad, or I need to stop being bad and start doing the good thing. But Jesus actually tells a parable. And I love the way Luke differentiates. Notice what Luke says in um, verse 6. It says, and he told this parable. In other words, most of the time in the Gospels, you hear that when they talk about Jesus telling parables, they'll say, and he told a parable, a parable, general. But Jesus is saying, unless you repent, you will perish. And then he told this particular parable. This one is sort of key to understanding the, what he's just said. And notice what he says. He says, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So the first thing you see here is, is an expectation communicated. 
And almost every commentator, I mean, it's, it's a pretty easy jump that one of the main metaphors in the Old Testament for Israel was a vineyard, or even sometimes fig tree. And so Jesus has been preaching to Israel for, for maybe a couple of years now, and people are not responding to him. Most of the Jewish people are not responding to him. And so there's a sense in which he's probably talking to them and about them. That God has sent you prophet after prophet after prophet, and now he sent his own son. And if you're not going to respond, cut it down. In fact, if you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, that seems to be what Paul actually implies there. That they didn't respond, and so, so God made room. But what about you and me? Is there something here for you and me? You see, first of all, the expectation is this, is that um, to, when you repent and turn to Jesus, that there will be fruit as a result of that. What do I mean by fruit? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is one way, place to look, right? Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Are you becoming more and more defined by those things? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. That's one way to look. Fruitfulness in the Bible, in the New Testament, is sometimes defined by um, whether or not you're actually participating in God's mission of bringing people in to hear the gospel and telling people about the gospel. Do you have fruit there? Now, some of you are going like, what if I'm not, what if, I, what if I've said I trust Jesus and I don't see this fruit? Well, I've got good news for you that Jesus is not going to let you slide. That he's not, he's not going to just let you drift if you're truly one of his. I love, what I love about this parable is the master comes and he just sort of bottom lines it. Fig trees apparently should have borne fruit annually. It takes a couple years for them to mature. And the master, the owner of the field, comes to the field, looks at the fig tree, no fruit. And he says, well, it's not bearing fruit, clearly. Cut it down. Just use, it's literally just using up ground that I could plant something else in. And... To his expectation, the vine dresser adds intercession. The vine dresser actually steps in between the owner and the tree and says this. He says, Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure. The vine dresser actually steps in and says, Let me give, give me some more time with this tree. Give me some more time to see if I can help it produce fruit. Who do you think the vine dresser is? You know, in John, the, Jesus is called the vine. I think here that Jesus is actually the vine dresser as well. Jesus is the one that intercedes for us with God. That God in his justice could demand our souls this very night. We saw that with the parable of the rich fool. And Jesus steps in and says, give me more time. If you read Second Peter, right, God is patient. Desiring everyone to come to repentance. What, what, what delays the judgment of Jesus right now is his patience with us. Now, if you're a Christian and you feel like you're a little less than fruitful, here's the good news for you. Did you see what the vine dresser is going to do? He didn't just say, wait, let, you know, let's wait, let's give it another year and we'll see what happens. He says, let's give it another year, but he said, get, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Now, let me ask you this. If you're, well, I guess if you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian, you, you ever feel like God's piling it on you sometimes? <laughs> to be honest, I know you do because I talk to you. And you say, I just feel like God just keeps piling things on me. What if, you know, when is it going to end? Well, the great news of the gospel is that God may be piling that manure on you because he wants you to grow. 
You see, we, we look outside and, and people would say, all these bad things happen in the world. There couldn't possibly be a God. Well, one of the testimonies of the gospel is that God actually uses those bad things in order to accomplish in us what he could only accomplish in us through those hard things. I remember one of my favorite preachers is actually a fictional preacher named Leo Beb. And if you read the book of Beb, there's an argument he has with an atheist in there. And the atheist basically says, this whole world is nothing but manure, Beb. That's not the word he uses, by the way. And Beb says, well, you know, here's the gospel that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son down here into the manure with the rest of us. That Jesus, if he really cares about you, he's not a distant gardener, but he's a gardener who has gotten his hands dirty. He got his hands dirty on the cross. And now by his spirit, he gets his hands dirty with us as well. That he continues to dig around and he continues to, to, to pile it on until we might, and, and that we might grow. Let me close with this story, give you something to think about. I, I've told this before. You know, several years ago, when our, when our oldest daughters were about one and two years old, and then Judy was pregnant, she had a miscarriage. And it was about 12 weeks in or so. I was devastated. She was in the hospital, and I went home by myself. And like any good Presbyterian, I turned to John Calvin for pastoral help. I didn't know who to talk to. And I pulled down Calvin's Institutes from my shelf. I was completely by myself. It was two in the morning. Just flipped it open, and the very first line said, by our tribulations, God wins us from excessive love of this present life. And then he just goes on to say, if there's anything in your life that you love more than Jesus, don't be surprised if God takes it. He didn't say he is going to, but he says, don't be surprised. Because if the goal of the gospel is that you would be repentant, that you would be more and more in love with Jesus, then it only makes sense that God is going to pare the rest of the things away. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and that you would give us hearts that are repentant. I mean, so often we use that word as if it's like, oh, the, you know, the person didn't repent or did. Father, it's a lifestyle. And I pray that you would make me more of a repenter. I pray that you would make us all that way. I pray that your spirit would work in us. And that when we, we, we feel like we're loaded down, that you would uh, we'd find you there with us. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen and amen.